Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant John McVeigh. McVeigh is a squad leader serving with 1st Platoon Golf Company, part of the 23rd Infantry Regiment of the 2nd Infantry Division. Specifically, we're going to talk about actions in August 1944 during the Battle of Brest. So what's going on to get to August 1944 in Brest, France? Well, to back it up a little bit, the United States is going to enter the Second World War in December of 1941. Now, something we've talked about a few times is the wait to get into the fight and how challenging that must have been, I think especially so in the Pacific, right? Japan attacked us. Germany didn't attack the United States. They declared war on the United States and we, we entered um, you know, alongside our allies. But I have to think there was more of an itch to get after it in the Pacific. And there, of course, were battles. There was Midway. We had, we had Doolittle's raid to actually drop bombs on Tokyo. And there were things we were doing, but we wouldn't be engaged in direct ground, hand, you know, direct combat, ground combat um, until Guadalcanal in August of 1942. So about eight months. And it's interesting to think of how long that takes. I, I like to use the example of 9-11 and how long it took us to get into Afghanistan. And I know we were itching. Let's get, you know, let's get them. Find, find bin Laden, find Al-Qaeda. Let's, let's, let's get after these folks. And it was weeks before there were CIA officers in Afghanistan, barely a month before Army Special Forces teams were on the ground. And that felt like it was taking a while. So it's hard to think of the feeling of waiting eight months to really get into that fight against Japanese soldiers. Nonetheless, that was the view in the Pacific. It's going to be a little bit different story in the European theater of operations. There's going to be a lot of other combat. It's not nothing until 1944. We're going to fight in North Africa. We're going to fight in the Atlantic. There'll be naval battles in the Atlantic. We're going to fight on Sicily. We're going to fight in Italy. There's going to be a lot of combat, a lot of very deadly battles, big battles. But the event that everybody knows is coming on every side, everywhere around the world, is this invasion of mainland Europe. We know to win this war, we have to put allied troops back on continental Europe to begin to roll back Nazi Germany, to liberate the countries that they've taken and are occupying. There's going to be an attempt through Italy. There's a thought that maybe we can punch through um, Nazi-held, Nazi-allied Italy, I should say, at the time and move up kind of through the soft underbelly. The Soviet Union um, over this period of time is going to be taking quite a beating for a while, inflicting some pretty serious damage on the German military as well. But at some point, there's going to be a little bit of a, you know, they'll catch and they'll start moving back towards Germany. So there's there's movement, at least a stalemate and eventually movement towards Germany from the Soviet Union side. But everybody knows there's got to be a landing. There has to be a landing. We have to come in and put allied troops on continental Europe and open a Western front. But there's a challenge because how you want to do it when you have the capability to do that and you can be successful because if we get it wrong and we fail or we're pushed back, back into the sea or back across the, the channel to England, it could be months, it could be years before we can make that attempt again. We can't risk it. So we have to build up enough forces. We have to set the stage to make sure we have the highest chance of success when we do cross the English Channel and land in probably France, right? On June 6, 1944, 
Operation Overlord kicks off. Well, the night before, as as Allied paratroopers drop into Normandy. But on the morning of June 6, 1944, we're going to see the main invasion force, seaborne invasion force, land on the Normandy beaches and begin this push to retake Nazi-occupied Europe. It was successful. We gained the beachhead. That was the biggest thing on D-Day. We had to establish a foothold to where we're not pushed back into the sea. And we do that, but that's not the end of it. We can't just land people on Omaha Beach and, and you know reinforce them at that beach indefinitely. That's a short-term solution. This is just the toehold. This is just getting troops onto the continent. What we need is a port, the Allies. We need a port to be able to land and resupply mass quantities of equipment. It's estimated that by September of 1944, the Allies are going to need 26,000 tons of equipment a day. You can't do that on the Normandy beaches. The Normandy beaches are temporary. They were salt beaches. We're going to tow these big concrete blocks across that are called Mulberry Harbors. They kind of create a harbor. It's better than nothing, but it's still temporary. And we're even going to have issues with that, and they're not going to work indefinitely. We have to take a port. We didn't target a port in the initial invasion because that need is understood on all sides, which means that the Germans have those more well-defended than other stretches along the Atlantic Wall. You know, For instance, Cherbourg relatively close to the Normandy beaches and something that's going to be an immediate target, but it was so well fortified, especially from the, the, from the English channel side that it wasn't worth taking it during D-Day. We're going to have to get forces on in inland and start to move up this peninsula to take Cherbourg. We're going to start that move on Cherbourg pretty early, like within weeks of landing at Normandy. And we're going to take it. It'll be, it'll be a pretty deadly fight as we see all across the battle of Normandy. We're going to take Cherbourg, but again, these port facilities are crucial. Just because we have this foothold on June 6th doesn't mean we're going to be there for good. If we can't resupply our troops, the Germans can 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 reinforce, resupply, and, and counterattack and maybe still push us off the peninsula. Nothing's guaranteed in June of 1944 or July of 1944. We're going to take Cherbourg, but the enemy understands they're smart. They pretty well destroy the entire port. It's just about useless by the time Cherbourg falls um, at the end of June, June 30th, 1944. So here we are about a month into the conflict on the European peninsula, on, on the European continent, as the Allies are moving to try to liberate these German held countries. And we still don't have a port facility. We got to find one. This is a, a short-term solution, right? The idea is as we move across Europe, we can look to other facilities. But right now, we got to get something. But that's a problem because the fight for Normandy is not fast. We tend to look at maps and see how this played out, and it just feels it's easy to use clean lines. And essentially, after June 6, 1944, the Allies are moving towards Berlin, and the Germans are moving back, right? We're just slowly moving forward. And that's generally correct. We generally advanced forward the entire time with some exceptions, but that doesn't mean that it was fast. And it doesn't mean that every day there were gains and losses in terms of progress. And after about a month's time, by early July, 1944, the allies barely have 30 miles cleared around the Normandy beaches. It's not going to work. We're trying to get to the next port facility. We're looking at Brest as we start to move into that battle. It's about 200 miles away. 
at this rate, we're not going to make it before we need this 26,000 tons a day that can't come in through the Normandy beaches. We're, we're technically still at risk of being pushed out of France. The Battle of Normandy is something that goes on for about three months. June, July, and we'll wrap up at the end of August. And it's, it's what we're seeing right here. It's why a month after the landings at Normandy, there's not been a lot of progress made. Remember, we're talking about moving through these hedgerows. We're talking about very canalized terrain that's easy to ambush Americans, very easy to set up defensive positions, very difficult to move forward at any reasonable pace. You know, we, we, we always look at D-Day, June 6, 1944, as being this incredibly deadly battle and, and causing so many casualties, and it did, especially for one day. But roughly speaking, we're talking 2,500 American killed on D-Day, Almost twenty, I think it was over 25,000 killed during the Battle of Normandy over a three-month period. 25,000. Ten times the number killed over that stretch. This is a nasty fight moving through France, and it's slow. And we're starting to hit, run into a problem where if we don't pick it up, we might not be able to stay here for much longer. By the end of July, there's going to be an operation kicked off called Operation Cobra, and it's designed to break out from essentially where we're, we're holed up around the Normandy beaches. It's going to be about a week-long operation, and by the end of July 1944, there's going to be an opening. The Allies are going to exploit that opening and start to wheel through German forces as they start to retreat. So this is, this is a big move by the end of July. Now we're going to really be able to open up movement, open up progress across Normandy and across the rest of France. But very early, let's get over there and take Brest. This is another major port facility, major city that can be used as a port, has a nice harbor. And we need that still. So we start moving forces towards Brest. We're going to move about 75,000 Americans towards the city to take it. And there's going to be about 45,000 Germans defending it. Now, something we've talked about before is this idea that, you know, well, we just mentioned it a minute ago, these clean lines moving back and forth across the country, but it's sloppy. You know, German units get left behind. Some people feel trapped. Should they abandon their post? What about these guys in Brest? They're kind of at the tip of a peninsula. They can't just give up the harbor, but they're on the verge of being cut off. What do they do? Are the orders clear? Should they try to fight their way out or do they stay and defend? And you run into this issue where, where troops start, start massing there. We're talking 45,000 troops to defend this city, including some crack German units, paratrooper units. So the 75,000 Americans headed towards Brest to open up this port facility or in for a fight. And it's a pretty nasty fight. It's going to go on a little over a month. There's going to be almost 10,000 Americans killed or wounded of 75,000 total. And the majority of German troops will end up surrendering. So I'm going to skip through the Battle of Brest and come back to talk about John McVeigh and his actions that kind of help lead to this successful battle. But the Americans would take Brest. It would, they would liberate the city um, in, let's see, it was in mid-September, September 19th, 1944, but again, the Germans know what they're doing and they destroy the port as best they can. So we're going to see this pretty deadly fight for a much needed port facility that is essentially inoperable for the time frame we need it. Fortunately for the Allies, we're going to move across Europe at a quick enough pace that we're able to find and utilize other ports, eventually Antwerp, major port facility that'll help resupply the Americans, the Allies through the rest of the war. But this major fight for Cherbourg and then for Brest ended up not doing what we needed. And they were pretty nasty fights. 
at the surrender of breast, I want to get into this last thing before we talk about McVeigh specifically, but during the surrender of breast, the American general that was going to accept the surrender, Brigadier General Charles Cannon, was commanding the 8th Infantry Division. He was going to accept the surrender of the German commander. Cannon was outranked by the German commander. If you, you know, if you line up the two rank structures side by side. So when the German commander came in, he said, I'd like to see your credentials. And Cannon looked around, pointed at his men and said, these are my credentials to accept the surrender. I thought, how cool is that? Nice little piece of the Battle of Brest. Ends up being a big part of the 8th Infantry Division's history, but I love that. You know, the, the German military looking for some very formal answer of what are your credentials to come here and accept surrender from me, but to point to your fighting soldiers that just took the city and just beat back the German defenders and say, those are. Love that. Let's back up a little bit to August 29th, right in the middle of the fight, 1944. This Battle of Brest is going to be pretty nasty. Again, we're talking 10,000 American casualties out of 75,000 total in the fight. That's a pretty substantial number. Sergeant John McVeigh is a squad leader serving 1st Platoon of Golf Company. His unit's moving forward, and they're on the advance, so they're not really dug in. It's kind of temporary halt, so you, you kind of take cover where you can, but you're certainly not digging in and building out defensive positions. And it's during this where you're susceptible to counterattacks, and that's what happens on August 29th, 1944. McVeigh and his unit are hit by a German counterattack, a fierce German counterattack. Remember, these aren't you know the extras from the German military. We're talking about some of their elite units. They know what they're doing. They're, they're warriors. A lot of them seasoned warriors. They hit McVeigh and his men quickly, violently, and at close range. Very quickly, McVeigh's whole company starts to buckle. The lines start to buckle. They start to fall back. And this is a problem. Anytime a American unit starts to fall back, it opens up a gap any military unit, I shouldn't just say American, in this case, American, anytime a military unit starts to, to, to fall back or be overrun, it exposes weaknesses to the units around you, right? So this is a major problem if they can't hold their line. But they are holding the line because of two machine gun teams. That's it. The two machine gun teams are holding back the German forces just enough. And what McVeigh is going to do first is direct their fire. Now, this is a term you hear a lot. In some of these Medal of Honor citations, you hear about it in, in military shows and movies and history and all these things. And I think it gets glossed over and it can make you think that, you know, what's the big deal? Directing fire. I can do that, right? Anybody can do that. Point, there's, there's an enemy soldier, shoot him. Directing fire in this context is talking about the enemy, the volume of fire the enemy is laying down on he and his men is so intense that the machine gun teams are barely able to even look up to see what they should be shooting at. All right. It, the, the bullets landing around the explosions landing around the, the enemy fighters closing in from every direction. It can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming to think, where should I shoot? When should I shoot? Should I even look up, let alone get a grasp of the whole situation. So what McVeigh does as a leader in this role, He's the one who looks up. He's the one who surveys the situation and moves to the machine gun team and starts directing it. Move to your left, move to your right. Second story of that house. Look down this alleyway, reload. He's directing this weapons team, right? It's a machine gun team, but he's utilizing them like as a weapon system. He's directing their fire because he's looking up, because he's taking the whole picture and he's able to do that. But that's, of course, a huge risk to himself. There's a reason that the machine gun team doesn't want to look up. It's because everybody's getting shot and killed on this battlefield. McVeigh does that for a period of time, but the enemy attack is vicious. Eventually, it knocks the, they, they knock the rifle out of his hands. He's without a weapon, except for his trench knife. 
And right then, he sees that some of the German attackers are about to overrun one of his machine gun teams, like almost on top of them, mere feet away. And the machine gun team with the, the explosions and the bullets and the sound and the yelling and the, the noise, they don't know that there is German soldiers. There are a couple of German soldiers about to step into their position and kill them. So McVeigh charges with a trench knife, stands up, charges, kills one of the German attackers, turns towards the other three and charges them. Stops them in their tracks, but in the process, Sergeant John McVeigh at the age of 22 is shot and killed at point blank range. But that act bought his machine gun team's time. That act, that selfless act, really sacrificing himself, jumping up to attack numerous armed German soldiers with only a trench knife, an act for which he'd be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor, bought his machine gun teams a brief moment in time. It gave them the ability to catch their breath and retake control of that fight and start reengaging the attacking German soldiers. And that, when the machine guns took control of the fight, allowed the company to come up and reform their lines and to reinforce those machine gun teams. And that company then continued their advance through Brest and a few weeks later would eventually, along with a lot of other American units, liberate that city. So it's an incredible story of this one act that has this domino effect throughout the rest of the fight, right? It's not only that he saved, he you know, without question, saved the lives of two or three American soldiers on that machine gun team. He know how many did he save because he helped them direct fire when they should have been overrun. And, and if those machine gun teams are overrun, it's not just those guys. It's the Americans and the rest of the line that are falling back. Now they're out of position. You start to see a scramble. A lot of people get killed in a retreat. So who knows how many lives he saved in that context, but directly saved the lives of the machine gun team by charging into German soldiers in the midst of a firefight with nothing but a trench knife. In turn, buying those machine gun teams time for his unit to continue their advance and to liberate, at the time, absolutely one of the most important aims of the war, taking Brest and taking that poor facility. Now we can look back and say the Germans destroyed enough of it that we weren't able to use it, but they didn't know that on August 29th, 1944. They had to take that port. They had to take it now. And Sergeant John McVeigh and his men did everything they could, including for McVeigh, given his life, to make sure that mission was accomplished. And in turn, again, posthumously, Sergeant John McVeigh would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.